0: I'm Olga Stella, the Executive Director of Design Corps Detroit. Welcome to the Detroit City of Design podcast. As stewards of Detroit's UNESCO City of Design designation, we hope to take you through a journey to become more inspired and aware of how design can be used to create the conditions for better quality of life and economic opportunity for all. I'm here with Sarita Scott who since 2012 has served as the executive director for the Community Development Advocates of Detroit, the leading voice of Detroit's community development industry. Previously, Sarita has served as a legal director and chief program officer at Michigan Community Resources and has worked for the city of Detroit. Sarita is deeply rooted in Detroit and serves on the boards of many local nonprofit organizations, including our own Detroit City of Design Stewardship Board. Welcome, Sarita, to the Detroit City of Design podcast.
1: Hi, Olga. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. I know we've worked together for many years and known each other, and I just am really happy to have you on the show today. I'd love for you to tell our audience a little bit about your work and Community Development Advocates of Detroit and its role in Detroit.
1: CDAD is a membership organization of community development and neighborhood improvement groups. We support our members in four distinct areas, public policy advocacy, capacity building, community engagement, and what we refer to as strong neighborhood initiatives.
0: And you've worked in Detroit for many years, and you've been at Cidad for many years. From your perspective, as you've seen Detroit evolve over the last few years, how are things changing, and are some things staying the same? What's your view of what's happening in the city right now?
1: Well, so I am a native Detroiter. I love to put that out there. I'm a big Detroit booster. I have spent my entire professional career working in Detroit, so it has been 20-plus years now. I've been working in community development for about 12 or 13. There have been significant changes <laughs> in the city, and I think across the board, there have been lots of changes, and so obviously, as someone who's spent their entire working career in the city, but not just in the city, but working in downtown or midtown for the entire time. There's been some extreme physical changes. Certainly, we can't deny that. There's been a lot of development and investment. As someone who's been working with the community also during this time, there's been a lot happening in neighborhoods on various levels. And so I think we are at a particular moment right now where I think there's some significant opportunity. But also, for those of us in our work, it's a moment of caution because there are some big changes that we don't want to happen. And so, unfortunately, we still have an extremely high poverty rate. Unfortunately, we still have significant number of tax foreclosures. We have a problem with water affordability. So there are some real serious issues we have in the midst of what many are just focusing on, which is the great investment and development that's been happening.
0: Yeah, it's easy to be in that bubble and not always see what's happening just a few blocks outside of it.
1: Definitely.
0: And so how does that compare with some of the other cities that you've visited and that you've worked with, you know, whether they're Rust Belt cities or they're big cities that have seen decline? Are you finding the challenges we're facing in Detroit neighborhoods similar or different in any way from other places?
1: You know, there are some similarities and I know Every city thinks they're unique, (laughs) but there are some similarities, particularly around the issues of development and displacement. So in areas that have some attractive amenities or who have some positives that they want to build on, such as Detroit with our location and the riverfront and all of that, there is development happening. and At the same time, there's displacement. So we are not the only city dealing with that. But one of the things that I noticed, at least you know, in earlier years doing this work, one of the differences is that quite often Detroit, the scale, the magnitude of scale, when we were talking about something like a vacancy and when we were talking about foreclosure or we were talking about disinvestment, our scale was sometimes just higher. And mm-hmm. so sometimes our challenges, while they were somewhat unique to our sister Rust Belt Cities, the magnitude in Detroit was just sometimes a lot greater.
0: And so in that context, what are some of CDAD's goals right now? What are the kinds of things that you're working on or that your members are working on?
1: So as a membership organization, we always strive to make sure that our work is responding to the priorities of our members. And right now, one of the top priorities is affordable housing. And so again, as we are witnessing a recovery and some sense in the city of Detroit. It's also the challenge that we don't have the type of affordable housing we need. We are beginning to see the kinds of housing prices and rental prices that we haven't seen in years. As community developers, that's one of the biggest challenges. We know housing is linked to so many other community issues. Tied with that, there's still significant work happening there around preventing tax foreclosures. And so again, I think we were all aware of the mortgage foreclosure crisis, but in Detroit, there's also been a tax foreclosure crisis, and one that to a certain extent we can control and maintain because we know that there are elected officials who manage that process. So a number of our members have been focused on that, not just the education on trying to educate people around where there are resources to help them with that. But how do we impact the policies that have also made this possible to have this number of tax foreclosures? And then, again, just keeping in this theme of land, a lot of our members are focused on how do we have community ownership of land? There's been a lot of work, and we have done some joint workshops with Detroit People's Platform around community land trust. There's interest on land contracts. So really being aware of the fact that land is so valuable, is becoming much more valuable in Detroit, and how do we ensure that there's community ownership of land? Those are a lot of the issues that mm-hmm. our members have been working on and that we've been working to support them around.
0: There's a lot of systemic components, right, that relate to all three of those when you think about how to tackle them, both immediate short-term kinds of things, but really much longer-term kinds of system changes that are needed. Yes. So given that, and we've been so grateful to have you as one of our City Design Stewardship Board members for the last two years and involved in the planning process around the Detroit City Design Initiative, you know, made a personal commitment of your own time to this work. And so can you help our audience understand a little bit about why you've done that and why you think design matters in a city like Detroit when it's still grappling with you know, these really challenging issues?
1: wow, it's been two years. (laughs) Um, There's a personal and a professional interest for my involvement. And on the professional, it's just one, the recognition of the role that design plays in our work and community development, but also recognizing that sometimes we don't always pick up on it. You and I have talked about is just This belief that design is not for everyone. That design is somewhat exclusive because it sounds like we know that people, you know, it's a study, it's a field, and people train in it. And so there's always this kind of hesitancy that if you don't have that type of background or pedigree, that you can't really comment on design because you don't have that level of understanding. So that was always really important if we could bridge the connection between community development and design and make it less off-putting or less fulfilling that it's just for some, that it's elite, but really a better understanding of the impact of it in our work. And of course, personally, as a lover of good design and what it does and the impact it has on our health and our feelings and our emotion and the kind of environment that we're creating, and I think I always share this story about looking for a school for my daughter and how design of the school, the impact of the schools I was visiting really influenced my decision and recognizing and thinking about what's the message that I want to send to not just my child, but to all of our children about what we think about them, about how we think they should be able to learn and how we value them and wanting to tie all of that together.
0: I think that's a big reason why the City Design, our initiative, calls for a real focus on inclusive design specifically because of this perception that design is something just for the elite or that it's expensive or unattainable in some ways. And both of us are residents in the city and our children play in city parks and visit neighborhood locations and go to neighborhood schools and the psychological and health impacts of having well-designed places that are welcoming and beautiful. It's the kind of city any one of us would want to live in.
1: So important. And that's exactly, I mean, again, why the tie to community development? This is a field where we are committed to making better spaces for everyone, for residents, improving our neighborhoods. And design is all a part of that. But I don't think we've always articulated that or recognized that.
0: Yeah. Well, sometimes the dynamic in community development and just the development sphere in general is kind of the public meeting dynamic, right? There's somebody at the front of the meeting they're sharing information, the community is responding to the information. It's that kind of a back and forth versus I think what's starting to change. And I think we see a lot of it in Detroit is the community really co-creating the plans and being part of the process all the way through. Where are you seeing more of that really taking place? And what do you think is fueling it, the co-creation?
1: Oh, wow. I think you're right. I think... That's another real positive of what's happening in the city for years. One of the things we've always said is that one of the great strengths of Detroit are the people. It's the residents and I do feel like we are in a space of seeing a lot more resident engagement, resident involvement, or recognition from leadership that that's so important and so, in my work, I have often given the credit to residents for saying they are the ones that keep me inspired they remind me that there have been people doing this for decades well before I came on the scene or anyone else. But now I think it's great that we're beginning to see that from our leadership. And one really good area is with the planning department and the planning processes that they've been doing. And I will say that they've improved as the city has moved forward. So I think they started in one neighborhood and there's been lots that they have taken and incorporated into the ones that have preceded that. So I think that's a great example. And a group that's been providing some support to at least one of these processes, we can really see the difference. And I think it is so important. It brings a real richness and a different dimension and some added value. And that's part of what we advocate for. We want everyone to see these mutually beneficial processes and it's a value that they're bringing that this co-creation is bringing on both sides that is only making our work better in this city.
0: What do you think the public sector gets out of the co-creation process?
1: You know, I am the community development advocate that really looks at it again as this kind of element of power and ownership. So community development started as a movement. It started as residents having the control and the voice and the ability to manage and decide what's happening in their spaces. And so this kind of co-creation is really beneficial because it gets back to that. Mm -hmm. Um, If we're talking about how the city should be developed, if we're talking about planning in a neighborhood, how does that happen without the residents. How can it happen effectively without the people who are going to be most impacted, the people who are going to be touched by whatever comes in, whatever is introduced. And so it's really important and I think beneficial and hopefully a return to the way the community development had always been done. I think that it is that co-creative process.
0: Yeah. When I started working in Detroit and community and economic development about 20 years ago, too, it seemed like many of the community development organizations, the block clubs, the neighborhood groups, they were innovating different solutions to everyday problems that they faced, whether they were managing parks that the city could no longer manage or they were building bus shelters or doing That's community right. gardens. And uh, maybe this is the transition for how the public sector does its role, as it should, but that community voice is still present and the innovation that happens in community, that kind of ownership can be incorporated in a workable way, right? It's not just, again, at the public meetings, people looking at finished plans, but really. Um,
1: exactly. I yeah. think, you know, and as you were speaking, it just reminded me of something my mom always used to say, necessity being the mother of invention. And you're right. We need to tap into all of the amazing innovative ideas, the way that people and neighborhoods have figured out how to do things, have addressed social issues and problems. There's a lot of and We always talk about making sure that we are tapping into the expertise within the neighborhood. We want to highlight that. We don't always have to think that our solutions come from outside Detroit. I think the best practices are us connecting the skills and expertise we have here and looking at what our peers may be doing in other cities to really improve upon that.
0: Yeah. So as we think about how to develop a city that really is for everyone, for the residents who've been here for a long time and for newcomers who will hopefully continue to help invest in Detroit and integrate with the existing community, what do you see as some of the best opportunities for inclusive design practices to move the needle?
1: Wow, that's a great question. I'm going to say definitely more of what's happening now with the city in terms of its planning work. There are a lot of, sounds like a lot of plans in the pipeline. We know that they haven't gotten to every neighborhood. And I think that's one of the best ways because it's so tangible and it really can pair the skills of city staff, what the skills of residents and the knowledge residents have and really make for better plans. I really was excited and we were looking for an opportunity around the city of design designation that Detroit has. I thought that was extremely exciting. And something to build on not only as a way for us to educate people more about the value of design and the role that design plays in our lives, but also as kind of a mobilizing point that could lead to more of these connections on how we begin to identify that design elements in our work or to better infuse it into our work. And so I think. And that's, again, another one of the reasons I was so interested in working with Design Corps was to build on that opportunity of having this really amazing, unique designation for the city.
0: Yeah, I know we've been really excited, too, as we've built out some tools with you and hopefully this year, too, when we debut the installations through the City of Design competition in southwest Detroit, Grandmont Rosedale, and the Hope Village neighborhoods, We'll be able to show folks in their neighborhoods tangibly some of the ways that design can help improve safety and walkability and can continue to help build that understanding for sure.
1: Yeah, that's great.
0: We'll have our second round of commerce design winners this year and just being able to have small business owners see themselves as being drivers of great design is, I think, part of how we start to change the culture and the community that this is for everybody. I love it. One of the things I'd love to get your perspective on is just what do you think is preventing more inclusive design, either processes or outcomes? What are the perceptions either in the community development sphere or the private development sphere, social services, the government that might be preventing seeing more of these kinds of inclusive approaches?
1: So some of it, I think, are just the misconceptions that are held. So one is the time that there's always this feeling that inclusive design or any kind of similar processes will take too much time. And I think there really isn't enough understanding of doing something right on the front end will ultimately save you more time than having a lot of frustration or pushback once you decide to do something that has not been inclusive. And also a lack of understanding of how to do it well. Some right. of the things we find is that people think it's going to take a long time. They don't really know how to do it. And so they think it's better to just not even address it, not even try. There's always the misconception about the level of understanding. And again, even for some people who are in the professional design realm, feeling that the understanding will not exist if they try to do an inclusive design Mm -hmm. process, that they don't know how to articulate it well or make it connect for lay people or residents. And so I think, again, that's another misconception about it. And then on the part of, I know one of the things I said on the part of those of us who may be doing the work or those people who are in the field doing the work, Again, the understanding of the relevance. So one of the things I would say, I would go speak about placemaking, which has this element of design in terms of creating spaces. And I said that one of the things I had to do with our membership is to help them understand why this was not a frivolous concept. Mm -hmm. And so when you are working and living in a city where you have some really serious and significant issues, I mean, at the beginning of our conversation, we talked about foreclosures and water shutoffs and a high poverty rate, and we know we have an education crisis. How do you then bring in design, which again, if you don't have an understanding, sounds a little frivolous. It sounds lighthearted. We have to do a better job of people understanding the significance and the connection to our lives and to our health and to the way that we work and to all of these larger issues. And I think that's, again, another thing that prevents it is Just all of these misconceptions about it, what it is, how it's done and the time it will take to do it well.
0: Yeah. People still think of the process itself as just slapping a logo on at the end or (laughs) picking out the most expensive materials or having some fancy building footprint. When it's really about the strategy at the beginning of the project and that your budget is a constraint that a designer will work within and that there's a lot of constraints that the designer is used to working within, but that sometimes the who's it for is missing. You you need both of those, right? You need the kind of understanding of what all the constraints are and that design isn't just for the monumental city park, it's for the neighborhood park too.
1: Exactly.
0: And that both of those things can be at different scales and different budgets, but it's the intentionality. And maybe the opportunity that we have in Detroit is to really have more people participate in both of those in a way that makes them feel and gives them the agency to benefit from the outcomes of both of those kinds of public spaces. Totally. And so on the theme of placemaking and inclusion, can you just help our audience understand where placemaking veers in the right direction towards inclusivity and welcoming everyone versus the ways that it can kind of veer in the wrong direction.
1: So the piece of placemaking that, again, really sparked my interest was hearing that it is creating a place that responds to what the residents in that particular place want. And so the placemaking model that we adopted was really about community driven placemaking. And so it was community driving how this space responds and interacts with them and supports their needs, as opposed to this idea that you are just creating nice, pretty, attractive places. One of the key components of placemaking is the use. Mm-hmm. If a nice place just exists, In isolation, if it's not being used, what's the point? Right. And so that was where the way that we, again, approached it is that placemaking wasn't even necessarily creating a new place. It was identifying those spaces that are already a draw or an attraction in the neighborhood that people already utilize and thinking about how we can enhance them, you know, make them respond better. Maybe it's improving the seating, improving the activities that are there, scheduling or planning some engagement and performances. So that's really been the focus. I think some people think of it as we just do, what was that model? We we do a a, a pop-up. Those are some of the elements, but the theme should be about what do people want, what do they want to see, and what do they feel would be a value add to the way that they're living in community. Do you
0: think the community development organizations in Detroit have been working in design without necessarily calling it out or or naming it in the same way that we've named placemaking?
1: Yes. I mean, that's so right. A really great question. And it's really one of the reasons that we even became involved in placemaking. As I was hearing about it and this workshop, I was sitting there thinking that this is really community development work just with a sexy title. So I definitely want to lift up, I mean, there's so many CDED members, probably too many to name, and then I don't want to get in trouble for naming, (laughs) but so many across the city that have been doing amazing work with inclusive design and practices and really extremely well thought and deep engagement with residents and resident leadership models that can influence and direct all of this. So yes, it's... Definitely placemaking is something that has been happening for many, many years, well before it was identified as such. And we have some great models of that work here in our city.
0: You've mentioned uh, quite a bit through our conversation today. This is still a somewhat resource-constrained environment that has a lot of challenges. And everyday people at all sectors, in the nonprofit world, in the government world, in the private sector, they're making difficult choices around how to invest both human and financial resources. As someone who believes in the power of design to create better opportunities and quality of life, how would you make the argument to a decision-maker who's really grappling with how to approach a project and how does design factor into their decision-making?
1: I mean, this is such a good time to be in that space and kind of have that dilemma. And I would really encourage people to seek some of the resources that exist right now. I mean, again, there's design core, there's the fact that there is the city of design designation. There's the way that we have the planning department operating. I just think that this is a different space where there are other resources. There are foundations that support there are small grants for doing these kinds of things. I think there are resources that exist, and even, If it's a financial issue, I think there are also even more guidelines for how to do things. There's CDAP who can put you in connection with community groups in your particular area or neighborhood. You can get feedback in all kinds of ways. And that's, to me, how I say one of the cheapest kind of ways. Like you said, what's directed by residents or directed by the users, getting input. I mean, now whenever we approach how to do something, we like to find out what would people like? What would be appealing? What would they use? I think that doesn't have to be cost prohibitive. It doesn't have to be time consuming. And I think now I would just want to remind people of all of the existing resources and how they could tap into it that could help influence design decisions that they have to make.
0: Yeah, and at the end of the day, they'll get a better product, right? I mean, that's exactly. That's fun. Yeah, it's yeah.
1: a win-win. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Rita, for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure talking with you.
1: Thank you, Olga. I'm so happy to participate.
0: This has been the Detroit City of Design podcast. If you like what you just heard, feel free to share this episode on social media, via email, or any other means. For more info on Design Core Detroit, visit designcore.org and search the hashtag #DesignCoreDET. That's Design C O R E. DET. Keep up with the show by subscribing for free in your favorite podcast app. Just search Detroit City of Design. And we hope you'll join us for Detroit Month of Design this September. The Detroit City of Design podcast is produced by Olu and Company, edited by Jag in Detroit, and recorded at Motor City Women Studios. Music by Diamondstein, courtesy of Assemble Sound. Special thanks to Jessica Maloof of Design Corps Detroit. This podcast is a product of Design Core Detroit, part of the College for Creative Studies.